Welcome back to another episode of People of Product. My name is George Brooks. And on today's episode, I had the pleasure of getting to talk to Diana Kander. She is a New York Times bestselling author, entrepreneur, innovation consultant, and keynote speaker. And we had an opportunity to really explore a whole spectrum of, of topics, everything from the fact that she's a refugee from the Soviet Union, all the way through the fact that innovation is not a mindset, or how do you actually measure curiosity? Maybe even how many pull-ups can you do today? And what does it take to learn a new skill like this? I absolutely loved our conversation. I um, have a lot to take away from myself. And I think this is an episode that you should share with your team that you should share with your peers or with your leadership or even with your practitioners. Because innovation is something that happens across the organization. It's a responsibility of everybody in the organization. And a big theme for that is, is really where are your blind spots? Where's the gap between what you know, don't know now and what you need to know? And that's really what curiosity is. I think you're going to love this episode and uh, I really enjoyed it. I know you will too. So let's jump right in. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure, George. Dana, tell me a little bit, maybe you can give us a, a quick background about yourself just to kind of prime the pumping and get us started. How far back do you want me to go? How far back do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, I'm a refugee from the Soviet Union and that affects a lot uh, about what I do and why I do it. So I feel like that's one of the... I think you should go there. That's incredible. Yes. <laughs> tell, tell, yeah. Give us, give us a story about yourself and then maybe how that leads to wh what it is you do today. Sure. So I moved to the U.S. in 1989 with my parents. I was eight years old at the time. And actually my first memory as a child is the night we left. It was kind of a, a scary situation, but we got here. My parents had $267 to their name. And, you know, we lived in a do donated apartment with donated furniture and they had to quickly get jobs, minimum wage jobs at TJ Maxx and Pizza Hut. And they figured out that there was very limited upward mobility uh, at TJ Maxx and Pizza Hut. So if they wanted to do something, they had to start a business. And so when I was in middle school, my parents started a manufacturing company that makes crowns for people's teeth. And by the time I was in law school, it had blown up and they now had 15, 18 employees that they were paying really good wages to. And my parents had gone from the bottom income bracket to the top income bracket just in wow. that span. Wow. And so I really got the bug for what entrepreneurship could do for somebody's life, how you could create something out of nothing and how it could change the lives, not just of your own family, but the people around you and impact your community. And so I really wanted to become an entrepreneur. I was a lawyer for all of 12 months and I do it in months because it makes my mom sad if I do it in years. <laughs> uh, before I left to go start, be a part of my first venture, I was a minority partner in the first three companies so I could learn from somebody else's time and money and ideas and then um, when I was 28, I started the first company that I was the majority owner of and uh, have been a professional entrepreneur ever since and have uh, in the last six years, 
become an author and a speaker on corporate innovation, not just entrepreneurship. That is amazing. I can't, I can't imagine how many lessons learned, not only from obviously you seeing what your parents had to go through, but also as you explored yourself, you having going through all this education, then going, uh, you know, I'm going to shift gears. And by the way, I do know a lot of entrepreneurs that started in law and went, maybe this isn't what I want to do with the rest of my life. And, but, but it ended up being such an incredible tool to start a company. Absolutely. What, as you kind of shifted gears into the corporate innovation space, what was something that, um, that was kind of eye-opening for you going from, you know, starting companies or being part of a family that had started companies to now looking at these larger organizations that are attempting to think like they're starting new companies, right? Yeah. So my first book was all about launching disruptive products, which I had done as an entrepreneur and it got in the hands of a lot of corporations. They were like, Hey, come teach our people how to think more like entrepreneurs. And I was like, Mm. no problem. I'll just teach them how to experiment and I'm going to teach them how to pivot and iterate. And you know, the first time I got in a big company, they were like, "Mm -mm." like, (laughs) (laughs) like this is neat, but we're not going to do this. And And I interviewed everybody who I had trained And I found out that there was so much fear present inside Mm. the organizations. Mm. I actually made a list of 17 different things people were afraid of inside the company. And so no matter what tactical things I was teaching them from entrepreneurship, they weren't going to do them because they were afraid for a number of different reasons. And, you know, the thing that was great about my parents and being an entrepreneur is like a lot of times you have nothing to lose. And inside a company, you have a lot to lose. And so it makes doing those things much more difficult. You talk a lot about curiosity kind of being that, that driving factor to start into innovation. What is curiosity? Yeah, thank you for asking. It's one of those things that a lot of people feel like they understand. You know, my favorite definition is it's the space between what you currently know and what you don't know. Mm. And most of us walk around with no space in our day. You know, like we're good. We know what we're doing. We have a plan that we're following. And if you don't have that space, if you don't have that question of what do you want to know more about, you're never going to be surprised or find out blind spots that you might have about the project. So I always try to be conscious about that space. Like I have a plan. I think I know what I'm doing, but what is it that I'm curious about the project to give myself the ability to be wrong and to learn? What is, how does that translate into creating a culture that thinks that way? So if you start thinking about a culture of innovation, what does that look like when kind of curiosity is happening at scale? Yeah, well, maybe something that will help with the definition is the opposite of curiosity is certainty. So Mm -hmm. the more certainty you have on a project, the more everybody's like, things are going great. Uh, The less curiosity there is, And for me, like the more potential danger there is at the end, especially when you're doing innovative work where a lot of factors are unknown and your job is really to learn your way to the right answer as opposed to execute on a plan. These are completely different skill sets. So when I go into an organization and I'm looking for how much curiosity exists there, I want to know how many surprises they've had in the last three months. And if they've had no surprises, then I know that there is very little curiosity on the team. Right. And what are, what are the other ways you measure that curiosity? So you, you said that one, that's a great example of like how many surprises that they've had. Um, 
if you're thinking about that, that spectrum of certainty to, to curiosity, yeah. what are other ways that you can actually measure where they're at currently and where they need to get to, you know, where they, sure. how do you move this? How do you move in that spectrum? So you just sit in on a meeting and if the meeting has is quiet and nobody challenges one another and everybody's like just reporting like things are going great and I'm going to continue doing things great. It's like more of a status report than uh, here's what I'm curious about. Here's what's difficult for me right now. That's how, you know, the mm-hmm. more um, certain everything is, the more quiet, uh, the, the less disagreement, the less curiosity exists on that team. Who do you think, who do you think is responsible for innovation? That's a great question. Tell me, I, I'm going to push back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, please. I Say, love it. It's what, a conversation. What do you mean, what do you mean for, for innovation, like on a team inside of a company? Yeah, I guess in, well, we'll start with inside of a company as you, as you start to, you've stepped into maybe talk to somebody or help somebody start thinking through this. Um, maybe, maybe they're starting to be curious. They want to be curious. There's a desire there. Uh, who's, who's responsible for getting that going? Who's responsible for continuing that posture? Uh, Yeah. I I think it's important for us to talk about what innovation is. And a lot of people assume that it's like a mindset. And so they'll say, come teach my people how to be more innovative and how they think. And innovation is not a mindset. It's like basketball is not a mindset, right? Innovation is a set of skills that you learn just like basketball has a set of skills that you learn and you practice. And just like the coach on a basketball team, it is the leader's responsibility to make sure that their team is practicing the fundamentals and that they're not just going out there and being like, well, we had that basketball camp. So just go out there and and do that thing. It's like watching and saying, Hey, you know, I noticed your shooting isn't, you're not doing the follow through. Like that's the job of a good coach. And the same is true for a leader on a, on a, team that's working on an innovation project. Okay. That's great. So as you start thinking about innovation being more of a set of skills, who's responsible for those skills then? Is it, is it the coach? Is it, I guess in this parallel is the coach is maybe leadership is leadership supposed to invite um, innovation activities into the organization? I mean, I I just think it's everybody's job. It's not like a one-time thing that you do. I I firmly believe that how you do anything in your life is how you do everything. And so it should be this level of curiosity should just be a regular part of our business. And the mindset that you actually want is the growth mindset of Mm. we can always be better wherever we are now is just a place and we can grow and improve from here if we get curious about how to do it. Like the most important thing that people should know is you don't improve from experience. You know, like you live and you learn. That's not true. Actually you live and then you just keep doing things the way that you've always done them. And if anybody has a hobby where they keep score like golf or basketball or tennis, then they know like you live, you practice and you stay the same unless you get a coach and you start working on that skill set to actually improve in a deliberate way. Oh, I love, I love that language. This, I mean, for those that have listened to our podcast before, they know that a lot of what we talk about is kind of that incremental improvements, right? Is that this isn't something where it's just naturally going to happen. If anything, things tend to kind of naturally decay rather than naturally improve. What are some ways that you, when you're working with teams or when you're just thinking about curiosity and innovation, what are some very tactical ways to get started towards, um, I guess, being more innovative or being more curious? 
Yeah, I think the easiest one is just to have a conversation about the problem that we're trying to solve. And oftentimes that's the biggest stumbling block for teams. Like they think that their job is to build a product or to deliver some kind of revenue, but not very clear on the problem that they're solving. And so when you're so focused on building a thing, you think that's your job. But mm -hmm. if you were focused instead of solving a particular problem, then there's like a million different ways to get to the same result. And so you'll be a lot more open about what's working and what's not. And the other thing that I try to instill is uh, the ability of you to be wrong. You know, one of the, my favorite questions is, you know, what percent of your decisions do you think are wrong on a daily basis? George, what do you think? Oh, of mine? I mean, I'm pretty great, but <laughs> I'm just, I, I think that's a great question. As I'm, as I'm stepping out and trying things, I mean, I experiment a lot, but I would say maybe like 30%. Yeah. 30% you're being generous. I would say like most people will tell me 10, 15%. That's their, like you're an innovation leader. I would tell you from game theory, when you're at the peak uh, skill set for your job, you're going to be wrong 50% of the time. Wow. And the reason that is, is because number one, a lot of your decision. And when I say wrong, I mean, there could have been a much better decision sure. or is literally the opposite of the correct decision. And, <laughs> The reason that happens is because a lot of the time you have incomplete information on which you make a decision or the information changes after you make a decision or just bad luck. And yeah. so it was the wrong decision. It worked out poorly. Now, most people, until I asked them that question, have never in their life thought what percentage of my decisions are wrong. They just assume that everything is correct unless they're like hit in the face with a bad decision, right? right. So if you assume that it's somewhere between 30 and 50% that of your decisions that are wrong, wouldn't you want to know the wrong ones as quickly as possible? Right. Of so course. How do we do that? What do we instill on our projects? So like one of the things I love for teams to put into their projects are pivot indicators. So hmm. now that we know what problem we're solving, how do we know if our solution is not working and when will we know? So again, we're not going to wait until it fails in a colossal way there's got to be some kind of early indicator that's going to tell us we should try something else. And most people, um, you know, they just want to be positive and will their way forward. And that means they spend a lot of their time and effort going in the wrong direction for way too long. We talk about this in the, in the idea of feedback loops, right? If you're not putting some level of feedback loop in place, you'll assume that every decision you're making is correct. Right. Um, and, and honestly, feedback, Feedback's great when everybody's celebrating yeah. and we all feel good about it. And I'll be honest, because Crema for such a long time was a, was a culture of celebration and we did get lucky a lot, or we did make a lot of good decisions that led us in the right direction. But what we've tried to be impressing into the last couple of years is how might we really challenge ourselves to not only think about feedback loops and the way that we measure, are, are, are we hitting the, the challenges? Are we solving the problems that we need to for our clients? Are we actually getting better at our skills inside the organization? And how do we measure that? How do we actually put something in place to gather feedback? As, you, as you're working with teams or as you're thinking about this, how, how are there ways that people are collecting that feedback to know what those, when that pivot indicator happens? Like what's a tangible way that they can actually start to look for those? Sure. So uh, you have success metrics on every one of your projects. Pivot indicators are going to be a measurement of something completely different. Mm. And oftentimes you'll know much sooner, like 
if it's going to take you two or three years to realize your success indicators, uh, it might take you a couple of weeks to know that you're on the wrong track, but it will force you to measure something that's not currently in the software. It's not currently in the game plan. And if you don't have that at the beginning, you're, it will be very difficult for you to instill um, those metrics. What are some of the best questions that you hear from a really curious and innovative team? You know, what are we missing? What could be a big blind spot of ours? Um, what, um, what is the weakest point of what it is that we're doing? You know, like the whole thing is not going to be amazing. What are, you know, it's kind of like doing a pre-mortem. What mm -hmm. are the things that are going to bite us <laughs> in the butt potentially? And then how do we prepare for those? So to me, that's the ultimate. It's, it's like getting ready for bad things to happen beforehand to give yourself resources and time to adjust and make decisions. I'll give you a perfect example. I launched a podcast. I sold a podcast to a media company and their plan was for it to get 50,000 downloads an episode per you know, episode. Right. And I was like, that sounds like a lot, guys. I, I'm, I'm feeling very uh, not bullish about that. And they're like, no, it's going to be fine. And so we launched the podcast. The first episode was like 2,500 downloads, which is great, but nowhere near the 50,000. Yeah, goal. I mean, it's, there's a gap there. Yeah, so they gave me a 10 episode trial for the podcast. So I was like, well, let's get on the phone and say, what are we gonna do to fix this problem? Like what kind of marketing can we do? Well, it took me like three or four more weeks just to get everybody on the phone. Mm. Then by the time we decided what we were going to do, we were going to run some ads on some other networks that took another three or four weeks to implement. So by the time we actually did anything, it was episode 10 and they were like, Hey, it's not growing. It grew to 10,000 downloads oh. an episode, but nowhere near again, the 50,000. Had we had a plan on day one that says, Hey, if we're below this number, we're going to execute plan A, B, and C. Right. Then we would have had so much more runway. And that's what I want teams to understand. You're saving yourself runway time to make adjustments that you just might not have in the middle of the project. And yet I think that's that what you described there is in some ways the ideal of what we want. How do we move more towards that, right? But I do think it's challenging because sometimes you're ignorant up front yeah. of what those might be. Um, so what do you do in that situation when you don't know yet what, um, you don't know yet what those thresholds might be? Sure. How do you, how do you start to even set, set them in earlier yeah. than that or smaller than that, I guess, to some extent. Again, like the success metric for that would be like 50,000 downloads, right? Yep. Your, yep. your pivot indicators are going to be way lower. It's like, look, if there's anything below 10,000, like red light, let's do plan B. Yeah. And so your pivot indicators are going to be just some really low number, some kind of bar that's like a warning sign for you to do something different. Yeah, that's or really good. Or it's going to be a measurement of something completely different. So I'm working on a software project. It's going to take three years to launch it, mm -hmm. right? My red blinky lights are when I try to um, set up meetings for people to talk about it, they don't seem interested yeah. in the thing that I'm selling. And you, you don't even need the software to know like this is a problem because I'm solving the wrong problem for these customers. Yeah, that's really, really good. Okay, so I know that you've been thinking about this idea of making innovation accessible. Yes. Um, what, what does that mean? What does accessibility and innovation look like? 
again, a lot of people think that innovation is like a mindset that you can have a workshop and get people like fired up and then they'll just be innovative. And what you don't understand is on the other side of doing new and different things, it's a lot of fear. And so what you really need to work on is those set of skills that people can execute on on a, on a daily basis. And so I have been making a lot of videos for uh, LinkedIn and Instagram to give people little bite-sized pieces of how to innovate every day in your life. It should be something that you do in your personal life and it'll just fall into, it will affect your professional life in just the same way. Okay, so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw you on here because I know you're working on something Yes. That I have done in the past, but have not gotten very far. Okay. And that is, I have to ask, how many pull-ups can you do right now? I could do zero pull-ups. <laughs> My goal for the year is to do 20 pull-ups. Nice. How many, how many have you, you've done 20 before? No, I think the top that I ever got to was maybe 12. Right. So but then, yeah, then I hurt my shoulder and then I, could, I basically, you know, had a reason to not keep going. So every year I pick a different physical goal to yeah. work on. Uh, so before I did a 10 minute plank, that was my goal. I did 11 and a half minute plank. Nice. Uh, then I did a handstand, which was like very, I've never, I'm not, I'm not a physically able person. <laughs> I've done okay. none okay. of before. That's so, context, context. Uh, yeah. And like, I can do zero pull-ups right now. So the reason I pick these things is because I will never be able to like will myself to do 12 pull-ups. Yeah. It is not a mental game. It is a set of things that you need to get curious about. And most people, when they do difficult things, like innovative things, they just try their best, mm -hmm. which is probably how you were doing at the 12 pull-ups. Yeah. Instead of starting with, okay, what are my blind spots? What do I not know? It is my thesis that is actually not that difficult to do 20 pull-ups if you are doing the correct things. If you are, that's what I learned when I was, when I did an 11 and a half minute plank. It's like, I looked up what people who do eight hour planks do. Yeah, the and world learned, record holder. Yeah, yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I learned that they spend a third of their time not holding planks, but exercising muscle groups. To be totally honest, I didn't even know there were muscles that did these things in your body, right? So yeah. if I was sitting at a table trying to brainstorm how I'm going to do a long plank, I would never come up with exercise muscles you don't know exist. Right. And the same is true on innovation projects. There's so many, like for everyone that has a list of everything I'm going to do to make this happen, there's an equally long list of things you don't even know about that would get you much further, much faster. So that's what I do. I force myself to work on these skills for myself each year of getting curious, of practicing, experimenting, of iterating. And each year, I hope people will join me uh, on the adventure. I, I love how practical that is, right? Because anybody can understand that, whether you're a practitioner, whether you're a leader, or you, know, you sit on the board of an organization, you can think about what does that look like for me on a, on a personal basis. And then of course, that that does shift your mindset. I think this is interesting because it actually makes me think of a book that I read called Unlearn um, by Barry O'Reilly. He was actually on the um, podcast not too long ago. And he shifted that for me because in our framework, we talk about postures, disciplines, and structures. And I kind of always lead with postures or mindsets, right? What's your posture going into this situation? What are your feelings? That's going to affect the work that you do. And then these disciplines and habits that you create. And then of course you're working within your structures. And that's not, that's not true. It's nothing less than that, but he flipped it for me because the language he uses is actually more about like 
as you start to make small changes in your behaviors, that will change your mindsets, right? And as those mindsets change, it will change your outcomes. And then you have the cyclical nature of the work that you do. And that helped me because I thought, it's easy for me to walk into the room and be like, all right, everybody be curious, be, be humbly confident and, and have resilience. And it's like, well, that doesn't just happen. Well, there may be people that can pull that off, but yeah. more often than not, it doesn't happen. It's actually about what can we be doing right now that will help us to seek curiosity, to help us to be more humbly confident, to, hum to be more resilient. What can we do? And I think that's what you're talking about is those small doings. Yeah, I think, you know how there are people who have different learning styles. So they like sure. to read things, they like to hear things. Well, I think that probably 2% of the population can like get a new mindset. I, I think Tim Ferriss is in that group of people like, oh, I'm going to do this now and I'll wake yeah. up tomorrow and do it. I am not in that group of people. I need to find ways to outsmart my natural tendencies yep. and abilities to be afraid and uh, to be, you know, insecure about the things that I'm doing. And so my willpower is just not strong enough. So mm. I need to work on the skills and the accountability to hold myself to doing those things. What do you think holds people going into that? You talked about kind of that fear. Um, what are, what are other things that hold people back from actually doing the best work of their lives? I would say fear is the number one thing and it is both fear on a personal level and then fear mm. generated by your leadership. So that's probably where I'm spending a lot of my time and research right now. And I don't mean like you have a boss that is trying to make you afraid. I think that a lot of leaders inadvertently cause fear in their workforce when they're trying to be a good leader. Yep. They just don't understand how they're putting so much pressure uh, on their team that it's causing fear to spike up and actually holds them back. Um, the book Multipliers, I think Liz, Liz Wiseman, yeah. um, she, she talks a lot about this with this, this idea of um, diminishers, right? Or even accidental diminishers. And I think the accidental diminisher is probably more common almost than the intentional diminisher, the person that actually wants to keep someone down or wants to micromanage. It's the person that doesn't realize they're accidentally creating an environment of fear where there, yeah. isn't, there isn't safety to give feedback. There isn't safety to take risks. So I've learned if to use that, you know, we call them courage builders and courage destroyers. Yeah. Uh, we, we are all courage destroyers. You know, you're not like one or the other, you right. have moments. And when you as a leader are at your weakest moment, when you have the most fear about the project, your role in the company, you instill that fear in others. Fear is airborne. Courage, mm -hmm. curiosity, those things are viral. You have to give them like one-to-one right? But fear, like you could have heard about somebody getting yelled at in your company at a meeting and be like, I'm good. I'm never speaking up again. And so how do we like stop the spread of that inside of our team, inside of our organization? I, you know, in doing this research, I was like, I'm going to write a book for people to stop being courage destroyers, you know? And then yeah. as I started learning more about it, I was like, wait a minute. I think I did some of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went back and interviewed everybody who used to work for me where it might not have ended in a great way. And man, did I learn about a completely different side of me Yeah. that I didn't even know existed. It was like going through a 12 step program. Like I learned about this whole other me and I apologized, you know, but it was so inadvertent. I was thinking about all the pressure that was on me to run this company and grow this company. And I, I didn't really understand the impact I had on others. And my goal with this next work 
is to help leaders understand how much power they have over the people that work for them to impact their lives, their performance, uh, and their mental well-being. And I think a lot of leaders, as they come up, they don't even they don't even know they're in a position to have that level of impact. That's right. I didn't realize that for myself. Is is Crema grew? I really never thought of myself as a as a leader. Probably until like maybe five or six years in. I'll be honest. It was I'm a peer. We're all right. creatives. We're on this a team. Fun. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then I remember one of the members of my growth team coming to me and saying, "Hey." I can't keep up with all the ideas that you want us to get done. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, we only, I mean, the subset of the things that we're actually doing is small. And she goes, yeah, but you got these like 15 other things. And I said, oh, every time a thought comes out of my yeah. head, which, oh, by the way, I'm an external processor. I talk out loud to think through ideas. Yeah. Every time I spoke something, she assumed that was a mandate. And I had no idea that it was putting this level of stress on her to, to think you have to do all these things. Mm-hmm. No, this is just me processing out loud. And so it took me, like you said, apologizing and saying, no, I'm so sorry I put that pressure on you because she'd been sitting with it for months. And then how do we get back to, no, keep focused on the things you're working on. I still want you to know where my head's at and, and understand I'm going to process out loud, but I need to figure out the better language so you know when I'm processing and when we're actually maybe like, let's put something into action. That's a great example. Okay. So one, I always like to learn from, the, learn where learners are learning, if you yeah. will. Where, where are you learning right now? Where are you exploring? I know you're doing a lot of research right now, but what's something you're really being inspired by right now? Well, I'm learning a lot about pull-ups <laughs> at the moment. That's good. Spending a lot of my time and effort learning about, did you know group strength is a big deal? Like it, it, can, it can mean the difference between 12 pull-ups and 20 pull-ups. Yeah. And so uh, all, all kinds of things that you never would have thought, you know, just like in a project. So I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn um, and I follow a lot of innovation thought leaders like Barry uh, and mm-hmm. yourself. And I try to get little ideas uh, that I'm inspired by. Plus I try to read a book every couple of weeks. Um, it's so good, right? I mean, there's just so much insight out there. So many perspectives. I think that's a person, the word perspective has been my inspiration recently. It's just like, how can I gather up even more perspectives? Uh, not that I have to agree with all of them, but at least that I could, that I can consume them and see them so that um, there's just more ideas to work with. Um, yeah. And uh, I've been making these little videos. Like I said, they're like one minute, two minutes long. And for me, making the video is like a way to process the information that I'm learning and thinking about, you know, there's this quote when one person teaches to learn. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm doing for myself is like distilling what it is that I'm trying to communicate and how I'm trying to communicate it. And they're so good. If you haven't seen Diana's, uh, I mean, the, on LinkedIn specifically, I can, you just hit the ground running this year with them and they're so fun. And I love, I get, what was the one uh, Pitbull? Um, yes. the inspiration. I mean, come on, if you can take an, uh, inspiration from Pitbull lyrics, I mean, that you're, it's the you're best business there. advice. So good. Yeah. So good. Where can people find you and what you're working on and who you are? So I'm spending uh, most of my time on LinkedIn these days and trying to connect with people uh, who want to learn and help answer innovation questions. Uh, but also you can go to dianacander.com to uh, find all kinds of information about workshops and keynotes that I've done. 
Danny, you are such an inspiration, both to me. I know tons of people that I've talked to. It was like, you know, do you know that Diana Canderson, Kansas City, where you are? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I know. She's we know we go back a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. You're, um, you're, you are. You're such an inspiration. I love the work that you're doing. The intentionality behind the work that you're doing. I think you do want to make the world a better place, and that that's um, that's a world I'd like to live in. So thank you for doing the work that you do. Ah, uh, thank you so much, George. This is awesome. Cool. Thank you. This episode of People of Product was produced by Larissa McCarty with the support of Gabby Caton, Julie Branson, and Alexa Alfonso. Our hosts are George Brooks and Daniel Linhart. People of Product is brought to you by Crema, a digital product agency. We believe that creativity, technology, and culture can help individuals and organizations thrive. Learn more at crema.us.